Today I want to talk to you about how to keep your peace. Have you ever heard the phrase, stinking thinking? Has kind of a rhyme to it. It's a rhyme on reason. You know, illustration, going back to our, <clears throat> excuse me, our, our days in Washington State, <clears throat> um, Karen and I lived in a home there for a number of years, not very far away from the water, from the water of the Puget Sound, and, and there were a lot of fishermen around, and, and one of them was kind enough to give us a whole salmon that he'd cleaned and just delivered it to our door, and we said thank you, and because it was clean, we just threw it in a dark garbage bag, unmarked, put it in the freezer out in the garage, and forgot about it. Well, uh, Karen, my wife, had this, this cooperative uh, agreement with a friend named Cindy where they, on occasion, would deep clean a portion of Cindy's home, and then to return the favor, they'd come to our house and deep clean a portion of our house. Well, one day, Karen asked Cindy, to deep clean our freezer, to defrost it in the garage. She took everything out, including this unmarked black plastic bag holding the salmon, not knowing what was inside. And, and I must confess my sins to you, our, our, our garage wasn't the neatest at the time, and that bag got mixed up in some other things. And, and when she finished defrosting and replaced everything in the freezer, the salmon did not go back inside. You know where I'm going with this. About two days later, I came home from work and walked through the front door, and I, I said, Karen, what is that, that smell, that stink in our house? I don't know, but I smell it too. And we, we started to wonder, what, what should we do? Where should we look? And I looked all over the place, and and, and I did this for several days, and I actually thought a mouse had died, maybe in the AC ventilation system, you know, in the ductwork. So I looked, but to no avail, there was nothing there. So this went on for a week or two. You could imagine the aroma in our home by that time. Uh, I was desperate. I, I, I finally went out to the garage and, and was looking around, and I saw this unmarked black plastic garbage bag, and I thought, well, I'll look in there. I, I, I opened it up, and uh, uh, I mean, talk about the ultimate in smelling salts. It was horrific. The smell could gag a maggot. I mean, it was bad. I couldn't get rid of it quickly enough. <laughs> we had found the source of the stink. Now let me make a practical application to where you are living today. In a similar way, our minds can become the victim of bagged, decomposing thoughts that we fail to reject. And it impacts the entirety of our lives. It starts in our minds, but then it impacts our emotions, our words, and our actions and it starts to destroy us. I have a relative, I'm friends with her on Facebook, and she recently posted what a friend suggested on a, a way of losing weight. And uh, here, here's the gist of it. What you do to lose weight is you give a numerical value 
to every item you put into your mouth and swallow down your gullet. You know, from one to ten, with ten being the best and one being really bad. Ten would be fruits and vegetables. One would be deep-fried Twinkie at the state fair. Okay. And, And here was the upshot. If you want to lose weight, never put anything into your mouth that's valued under an eight. Okay? Now, I got to thinking... I, I've got a quicker way for people to lose weight. Just eat some of that fish I had in my garage, and I guarantee you lose weight fast. Spiritually, we feed our minds with what we think, what we ingest. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Scripture says. And, and I just want to suggest to you, this message is all about what you think, how you think, and that relates to your peace. And you ought never to enter anything into your mind that's less than an eight, as in Philippians 4, 8. Know that verse? Paul says, Whatsoever things are pure and true and honest and praiseworthy and excellent, think on these things. That's why Jesus, in the passage before us today in John 14, he says you've got to stop negative kinds of thinking, decomposed kinds of thinking, Because you're going to suffer from panic instead of peace unless you change the way you think, which is a matter of repentance. Our text for today explains, we're going to begin reading in verse 27, this message again, how to keep your peace. It's part of a larger series I did at my ministry currently where I serve, Brownsburg, Indiana, which is just on the outskirts of Indianapolis, a suburb, five-month series, part of the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus is about to go away, informing the disciples how he's going to send the Holy Spirit and take care of them. Verse 27 reads from the lips of Jesus, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now you will notice that that last sentence correlates to the first verse in John 14. If you look back up there, Jesus said those very same words. Whenever Scripture repeats something, it's for purposes of emphasis. He knows our tendency toward fear. And he literally says in the Greek, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Implying that they were troubled. They were fearful. They were worried. Let me explain the Greek word for troubled means to be agitated, to be pulled back and forth, to be anxious, to be distressed. It implies a wearied body and a worried mind. And the word here for afraid really implies the paralysis of analysis, the paralysis of fear. And if we're really honest with ourselves, uh, these are the thoughts that often dominate our thinking even as Christians. And they pull us down. And they end up destroying us. They're decomposed thoughts that lead to stink in our lives and destruction. It always starts with what you think. Now follow me here. I have a friend who speaks often in neuthetic counseling circles. That is biblical counseling. And he uses an acronym T. T-E-A. T stands for thinking. E for emotions. And A for actions includes words. And there's a trickle-down effect. What you think then impacts your emotions. 
And I'll be honest with you, oftentimes our emotions just get way out of control. Often emotions are screaming and they're lying. They're very, very real, but they scream at us and they lie. And that drives our behavior, that drives our words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We say what we're thinking and what we're feeling. Unless we walk by faith and follow the scriptures, it will bring us down. T-E-A. Thoughts, emotions, and then actions. Now, in context, the disciples were freaking out. I mean, it was panic city. Because after three years of hanging with Jesus, the Messiah... He announces to them in the upper room, hey guys, I'm going to leave you shortly. I'm going to do a stage left. I'm going to exit. In fact, verse 28 tells us, he says, I'm going to go away, and where I'm going is to be right where I used to be, in the very presence of the Father, that relationship I have. And he's talking about the the upcoming crucifixion and, and resurrection and ascension, 40 days later going to heaven, and he's saying, guys, guys, I'm leaving you. And they're just, they're just filled with fear. And emotionally, they were lower than the proverbial snake's sneakers. They were low. Now, some of you are here today, and you're, you're struggling with your stress of life. I, I tell people regularly, just assume the people nearby are struggling, because everybody is. Life is a struggle. And a lot of people have messes, and that's why we need the counseling from God's Word. If I were to counsel the disciples, and by extension, if I were to counsel you, I would endeavor to give you hope from the Scriptures. The Word of God gives us hope. One of the verses we often use in biblical counseling to give hope is 1 Corinthians ten, thirteen, And this is what it says. There is no temptation taken you or overtaken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with that temptation or testing make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. So we're going to apply your problems to this verse. The reality of life reveals the relevance of Scripture. So let me unpack this verse in your hearing. You'll hear a little bit of what I would do in the counseling office. Four promises in this verse that attack the erosion of hope. We're just going to take this verse apart. First of all, we explain that your situation is not unique. A lot of people think, I'm the only one going through this, and that's just not the case. Why? Because of what the Scripture says. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. And do you know that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, went through every kind of trial and temptation that you go through? That's Hebrews 4.15. He was tested, tempted at every point like as we are, yet without sin, and therefore we're invited in verse 16 of Hebrews 4 to come boldly to the throne of grace, to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the nick of time. He understands. That's why we have the Savior. For this we have Jesus. He understands. So, We go to the next phrase. We explain to you that God has not forgotten you. I know it feels like it so many times, like you're on the program Survivor and you're the last one on the island and God's forgotten about you. But no, the Bible says God is faithful. You've got to take that to the bank. You've got to believe that when you don't feel it. You've got to believe it. 
God is faithful. In the Old Testament, there's a word often used in the Hebrew, chesed, loyal love. It's translated steadfast love in the ESV. His commitment, his covenant to us is to keep us, to keep us safe, to protect us, to help us. And that will never, ever change. He's faithful. Hmm. Thirdly, we explain that your trial is not too much for you. And this is where a lot of you probably, if, if I talked to you eyeball to eyeball, would say, I, I protest. You don't know what I'm going through or so-and-so in our church is going through. This is too much. I don't make this up. I'm just telling you what, what Paul, what Jesus, what the Scriptures say. And, and Paul says in this particular passage that you will not be tempted above what you're able That's God's promise to you. He will give you grace. Grace is divine enablement. When Paul, the apostle, had this thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it was, he came to the Lord three times and he prayed, Lord, please, please take this away. And what did Jesus say to him? He said no. Sometimes Jesus will say no to you, but this is what he did say to him. My grace is sufficient for you. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul responded, there will I much rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then he's strong. Hey, if you can provide the weakness, he has already provided the strength, the grace for you to get through it. He will take care of you. That is the promise of Scripture. Next verse phrase says, finally, we explain to you, you will not be locked into an impossible situation. He will make the way of escape. It's a definite article. Now, if you sit down for counseling with me, we may not know right out of the gate what to do, but we're going to study God's word together and find out what he wants you to do based upon the sufficiency of the word of God. Now, the question is today, will you believe that God is enough, that he is sufficient, that he will give you the peace that you, you need? Because if you don't, you will struggle with fear that will lead to paralysis. And I have learned a little insight into the soul that fear is related to desire so that what you fear often indicates the condition of your heart, the idolatry of your heart. As David Pollinson says, our hearts are idol factories. We all struggle with idols regularly. And fear is sinful when it's rooted in the loss of some cherished idolatrous desire. For example, I'll show you some some illustrations here. Those who lust after money fear poverty. Your God, your idol is, is money. Those who lust after approval, they typically fear rejection and conflict. And many of us just want everybody to like us and just just know right now that you can't get through life with everybody liking you. Don't, don't go there. Don't try to please everybody. It'll just make you go half crazy. You can't please everybody. So don't, don't even try. Thirdly, those who lust after control, you know, they're control freaks. They want to control everything, their life. They can't even trust God. They want to be at the, you know, at the steering wheel. They typically fear losing control. And finally, those who lust after their own life fulfillment, you can describe that as comfort, typically fear losing the enjoyment factor in life. Some of you are afraid of getting sick or afraid of growing old, and you're trying to do everything you can, and you live in fear. 
Now let me, let me let you walk in the sandals of the disciples for a few moments. Let's suppose I'm counseling you and you've got a problem. Marriage problem, kid problem, financial problem, whatever it is. And you're coming for some help. If you cling to your fear, if you allow that to fill your field of vision, instead of choosing by an act of the will to believe what God says, it will keep you from fulfilling your biblical responsibilities, which brings peace and joy. What are your biblical responsibilities? You can't be paralyzed, but you've got to move ahead in the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then love your neighbor like yourself. If you do that, you will have joy and you will have peace. If you don't do that, you will sit and stew in your own pew. Stinking thinking. Now, you've got to get this down. This is, this is solid theology. Please understand. You've got to get this in mind. When we Christians are afraid, dominated by fear, it's almost certainly because we have a misperception about God. We don't believe Him to be who He says He is. We have a faulty belief system. We say we believe in God, but our behavior betrays us. And let me just submit to you that what you really believe is not what you profess to say you believe, but how you live. How you live is what you really believe about God. And how you live often reveals that we are actually practical atheists. Because we're dominated by fear. Example of promises God makes based on his character. God has not given us the spirit of fear. But what has he given us? Power, love, sound mind, which is really a synonym for Self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. That's 2 Timothy 1.7. You have to believe that God is in control. In fact, one theologian put it this way. I love this quote. Whatever it takes for you to own the doctrine of God's omnipotence, his sovereignty, do it. Whatever it takes for you to own the fact that God is completely in control, you've got to own that or you'll never make it through life without being pulled apart. Anxiety points to what we really believe, what we really think. Some people assume that worry is a result of thinking too much, when in fact it's actually the result of thinking too little in the right direction. You've got to believe that there is a God who's too good to be unkind and too wise to make mistakes. And if you don't believe that, you'll look like the guy on the screen full of worry, his family in the background, trying to figure out how he's going to make life work. You've got to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. God is who he is, according to Scripture. He has purposes and plans and promises that will help us not to worry. And it all comes back to understanding the gospel. Now, I know you're looking at me today, and, and frankly, I hope you lose total sight of me and you just see Jesus and the word of God because this really isn't about me it's about the scriptures it's about helping people loving on people supporting people I, I I'm very impressed with what I've seen uh, I, I've met with your pastoral staff I've talked with your deacons I've been here to services numerous times over the years because our kids attend this church I've always loved Cedarville this is a wonderful church you frankly probably don't realize just how unique is the blessing, the finger of God upon this place. This is an amazing church.
And God's really tugged at my heart to say, you know, be a part of it if the Lord allows. I've gone online and I've studied, uh, you know, what you're about. And and there's one hyphenated word that you use to describe your church. It's gospel-centered, which is a great word. I know Pastor Pat's a gospel-centered man. I love that. I love his preaching. I love his theology. There's a lot of people who don't understand, however, what gospel-centered fully means. A lot of people apply the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ only to the past tense aspect of their salvation. I've been saved from the penalty of my sin, and that's where it ends. Yeah, I believe that gospel stuff. Yeah, I got saved. The end of the story. No, 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 no. The gospel's much bigger than that. And not only is it about our, our past penalty of sin, it's about the present power of sin, what we call progressive sanctification, where the power of the gospel crucifies the flesh and the living Christ lives in us and through us now and becomes our victory. And then there's the future aspect. That's why you've got John 14, verse 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. That's a reference to the rapture. He's going to come back for us, and he's going to finish the job, finish our salvation. Because of the gospel, he's going to change us and make us completely like Christ, giving us redeemed bodies when we're resurrected from the dead at the rapture. All of that is a part of the gospel. So, to define it, the gospel is what God has done for us in Christ and what God will do for us in Christ. Now, that's different from the worldly idea of peace. And Jesus said, not as the world gives, Gileon, to you. What, what does the world say? Worldly wisdom says to get peace, you've got to get rid of all negative circumstances, run away from all problems, but that's, that's impossible. Well, look at chapter 16 and verse 33. It's, it's on the screen. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. How? Through the gospel. Some of you protest as you think and engage me in this message. You say, But Kurt, don't you know what the devil is doing right now? The world is falling apart. So many people are struggling with all the tragedies and traumas of life. Well, Jesus recognized that he is right now extant and loose and doing his thing, but it's controlled, it's limited. He's just this little window, and he's already been defeated. And let me explain. Let me take you to verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, and now I have told you before, this is prophecy from Jesus' lips, before it takes place, he's talking about the crucifixion and resurrection, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And if you're here and you're unsaved, you've never been born again, I just want to challenge you, invite you to repent, turn from your sin and believe this gospel, that Christ paid for your sins and rose again, and you invite him in, you'll be transformed by the power of the gospel. Wonderful message of salvation. And then Jesus speaks to Satan in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan is the ruler, prince and power of the air, the god of this world. And he is, yes, that right, right now, that's what he's doing at this moment. 
But he goes on, he says, he has no claim on me. What does that mean? No handle, no authority over me. And by extension, no handle or authority on any of us who are Christians. That's the blessing we find here. So exactly how do we how do we get this peace? Is it something we conjure up by trying harder? Do we manufacture it? And the answer is no. Peace is a gift. It's a divine gift. It's not something we work for. Jesus gives us peace because he is our peace. He says, my peace I give to you. Now to me, the key to this entire upper room discourse is chapter 15 where we find the linkage between the vine and the branches. Turn over to verse 4 for a moment. Verse 4 of chapter 15. This is the key to finding peace. It's found in the word abide, which means to be at home with, to stay connected to, to draw your life from, to remain in, to stay connected to. 15.4, abide in me, Jesus says to his disciples, and I in you, as the branch, that's we who are, are Christians, cannot bear fruit by ourselves unless it abides in the vine, that's Jesus, neither can you unless you abide in me. So fruit comes from abiding in Jesus. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and what's the next one? Peace. It comes from Jesus, from abiding in Jesus. The original word for peace in the Greek is irene. And it's the word that means to bind together. The word worry means to pull apart. Peace is binding together with Christ and finding your strength and calmness and tranquility in Him. For this we have Jesus. He is sufficient for all. We're complete in Him. The Hebrew word for peace, you know how the Hebrews will say, the Jews will say shalom. It's a word for wholeness and health. It's the correlation to the New Testament irene. And you'll note in the New Testament how often Paul links the words grace and peace, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In his epistles, he'll begin with those salutations. Grace is divine enablement. Grace is God's acceptance of me. And faith and peace is my acceptance of God's acceptance of me in Christ. So when you agree with God, what Christ has done for you, that's saving faith. And you're transformed and you get peace. And Pastor Pat may have preached on this recently as he's been in Romans. Therefore, being justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just pause here, right here as I'm moving toward the last part of my message to to give you a definition for what I mean by peace. This is my working definition because I want you to understand, I'm talking both about the peace with God and peace of God. You can jot this down if you want to. What is peace? Here, here it is. Peace is the unshakable confidence and tranquility of heart that comes from our standing with Christ. What is our standing with Christ? Do you know that if you are born again, if you've been saved, you are considered to be holy and righteous and forgiven, and chosen, and loved, and accepted, and and you can never do anything to make God love you more or love you less. 
That's who you are. And peace comes when you say, you mean that's how you look at me? You're not mad at me? No, no. I, I am thrilled with you because you're in Christ. And you've got to live on that foundation. And then to go on, in my definition, peace is also our faith in God's sovereign plan for our lives. You know, God is, is filtering this through His fingers. This comes from God. He's completely in control. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 3.16, it reads, May the Lord of peace himself grant you peace. The Lord of peace is the one who gives it. Frankly, the pronoun himself in that verse is emphatic in the Greek. It emphasizes God's involvement. Our peace comes from him because Jesus said, My peace I give unto you. Now let me just wrap this up with a few illustrations. You watch people, and uh, some people seem to ride above the storm, even though they're going through great difficulty. They've got peace. They've got a smile on their face. And then you've got other people who are just being ripped to shreds. What, what makes the difference? Why do some people evidence so much peace? The answer is not found in them. It's found in Him. They're resting in Christ. He's the one who gives us our strength. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm just like you. I'm still in process, progressive sanctification. i got my own struggles. I can identify. There's times, many times, most of the time probably, when problems come my way, I pray, Lord, please get rid of this like yesterday. And he'll say to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Human nature is to be like the disciples in that boat when it was so stormy, the wind blowing, you know, and, and Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. They wake him up, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? And he rebukes them before he rebukes the storm. Where is your faith? Trust in me. I'm God. I'm your Savior. I'm your Messiah. I'm your everything. Just hang loose. Cool your jets. Just rest in me. The more you mature in the Christian life, the more you will come to understand that Jesus is more concerned with your response than with your relief. He's more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. The basic principle of how God works, as per Romans 8, 28, looks like this. When God does not choose to calm the storm without, He's faithful to calm the storm within. We call that peace. Two artists set out to paint Pictures depicting peace on their respective canvases. The first artist depicted a carefree lad sitting on a boat, a very placid lake with nary a ripple on the water. Can't you picture that in your mind's eye? The second artist, however, captured a raging waterfall with winds whipping spray all about. But out on a limb overhanging the swirling water, a mother bird had built her nest, and there she sat peacefully brooding her eggs. It is that second painting that depicts biblical peace. In the world you'll have tribulation troubles. Be over, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Hmm. I want you to understand that Jesus gives us security in the midst of the storm. And as verse 30 reminded us, Satan is limited. Everything else that we consider evil in our life is limited. Now, let me speak to the big C word for a moment because 
In any given church, at any given time, some folks are going through cancer. But I'm going to read you something about what cancer cannot do, but I want you to fill in the blank with whatever your problem might be. And there's a variety of problems that stand here today, right, where you sit in your situation. I want you to put your situation, your problem, in place of the word cancer. What cancer cannot do? Let me read this for you. Cancer cannot cripple love. Cancer cannot shatter hope. Cancer cannot corrode faith. Cannot eat away peace. Cannot destroy confidence. Cannot kill friendships. Cancer cannot shut out memories or silence courage or invade the soul. Cancer cannot reduce eternal life, quench the spirit, and cancer cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. Everything external has no power over us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For nearly 27 years, Kieran and I lived on an inlet of the Pacific Ocean, part of the Puget Sound. In fact, the Puget Sound has a variety of inlets. The last 10 years, we lived near a town called Paulsbo, just very close to Liberty Bay. Buoys were common on the surface of the water. They marked danger areas. Often the seas were rough, and the buoys bounced like bobbers on the waves. But you know this, if you've ever done deep sea diving, you know this, that deep down, deep down, those anchors at the bottom is what keeps those buoys secured. And deep down where the anchor is on the ocean floor, the waters are always calm. There's never any turbulence where the anchor is on the ocean floor. Illustration. It's a picture of the soul that is anchored to Jesus Christ. Circumstances may buffet us on the surface, but we find our security in the Lord Jesus. I just love Hebrews 6.19 that tells us this hope, Christ, we have as an anchor of the soul. Now watch this. Our anchor is an anchor to the ocean floor. Our anchor is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You don't throw the anchor down. You throw the anchor up. And we're connected to the anchor by faith in Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for us, interceding for us. He's going to keep us secure forever. He's going to provide for all of our needs. And he's going to bring us safely home to harbor because he's God. And what he's done stands forever. And when you believe that, the anchor of your soul, you will find peace. Would you pray with me? A common malady, we suffer fear, worry, anxiety, pulls us apart. I confess my own sin. Lord, I pray you'll help us to get rid of stinking thinking to refocus our thoughts on the Word of God, the promises of God, the hope we find in what you've communicated. It all is found in the person and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray for somebody here who's never been saved, that today they'll throw aside all their struggles and worries and fears of trying to obtain salvation by how they perform and just rest in the finished work of Jesus who died for them and rose again. And may they turn in repentance and believe on Christ to the saving of the soul. 
And for my Christian brothers and sisters who are hurting, Lord, I want to help them. I want to encourage them. I pray that you'll help them to understand they have an anchor that will never move. This is the anchor of the soul that is found in heaven itself. Thank you that Jesus is enough. We're complete in him. For all of our problems, for this we have Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.